Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 215. It's titled, Is a Dollar Crash Coming? Last week on the Money for the Rest of Us Plus member forums, a member posted the following. He writes, Just listen to Peter Schiff on Joe Rogan's podcast rant about the upcoming collapse of the world financial markets. I know he is a perma bear and pushes buying gold through his own company, of course, yet he still has the ability to bring up a lot of fear in me. Is he crazy or is he right? Now, I had to look up who Peter Schiff was again. His website says he is an economist, financial broker, dealer, author, frequent guest on national news and host of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Joe Rogan's been a podcaster since 2009. I don't regularly or really, I don't think I've ever listened to his podcast. And this episode was three hours long. But I decided to listen anyway. LaPerle and I were driving home from Salt Lake City. We listened for over three hours because I would stop, talk about what Schiff was saying. And I found it a useful exercise because there is a number of things that Schiff says that I agree with. But there's probably more things he said that I disagree with disagree with, including his contention that the economy is about to fall into a severe recession before Trump's first term ends, and that means the dollar is a bottomless pit. That means nobody is going to want to own it, and everybody is going to want to get out of dollars. Everyone is going to want to get out of any bond that is denominated in dollars. That's his quote. When Rogan asked Schiff why a recession was coming so soon, Schiff's response was, we are overdue. We usually don't have economic expansions last as long as this one. Now, I have no idea if we will have a severe economic recession before the end of Trump's first term, but I do know that economic expansions don't die of old age. We talked about this in episode 138, Should You Sell Stocks Before Trump Takes Office? And I referenced an article by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, Glenn D. Rudenbush. It was titled, Will the Economy, Economic Recovery Die of Old Age? Here's what he said. The historical record since World War II does not support the view that the probability of recession increases with the length of the recovery. 
Based only on age, an 80-month-old expansion has effectively the same chance of ending as a 40-month-old expansion. Therefore, the current recovery is no more likely to end simply because it's approaching its seventh birthday. They estimate that the odds of a recession in any given year is 23%, with a 77% probability that the recovery will continue. Now, if you know statistics, you know you can multiply that 77% probability of the expansion continuing year by year to figure out what's the probability of a nine-year expansion. And it's less than 10%. So we are in rare territory in terms of a recovery this long. There's a 7% probability that we will have 10 years of economic expansion. But this does not mean that the odds of a recession is greater next year. It's still 23%, which is why we have to monitor investment conditions and to look at data such as purchasing manager indices, other leading economic indicators to see if the risk of a recession is increasing and then make adjustments. But it's not going to happen just because it's been a long time since we've had a recession. Now, Schiff went on and discussed what he thought was wrong with the U.S. economy. Why do we not have more economic growth? This is at the 29-minute mark. He says, the trade deficits are not the problem. They are the consequence of the problem. The problem is that we have bad monetary policy, bad fiscal policy, too much regulation. That's why we have a trade deficit, because American industry is not productive enough. We don't save enough. We don't make the right capital investment. That's because interest rates have been kept too low. Our tax code favors debt. We have a lot of regulations that make American businesses less competitive. And so the result is we import a lot of products rather than making them ourselves. And it's not because the other countries aren't fair or because they have tariffs. Tariffs are very low around the world. Tariffs are not the problem. And so if Trump is simply going to erect tariffs, all that is going to do is tax the American public because the American public has to pay the tariffs when they buy imported products. This is not going to turn the economy around. I agree with that. Tariffs are just a tax that ultimately consumers pay. And and there's some evidence as companies have gone through their quarterly earnings call, they're talking about passing on these higher costs to consumers. Shift continues. This is minute number 32. The basic problems with the U.S. economy is this is, and this is because of monetary policy and fiscal policy, is we don't save anything. And because we don't save enough, we don't invest enough. We don't produce enough. We don't make enough real things. When Trump wants to say foreigners are taking advantage of us by running these huge trade surpluses, he's got it backwards. We're taking advantage of them. The Chinese are sending us all these products. They worked hard to produce, and they had to use real resources, land, labor, capital, to make these products. And they send them here. And what do we give them? We give them IOUs. We give them a piece of paper. And they buy our treasury bonds. I agree with that too. Imports. 
that come into our country, China and other countries use real resources, their land, their labor, and we give them digital currency that's not backed by anything, and they take it. Now, there is a problem, and Schiff mentions this. In the short run, Americans are putting everything on a credit card. We are living a higher standard of living because we can consume what we didn't make, but when you do that, you become poorer. America used to be the richest creditor nation in the world. The world owed us a lot of money. How do we go from becoming the biggest creditor to the biggest debtor? It was trade deficits. Every year we keep borrowing money to consume. This has turned a rich country into a poor nation. We just don't live like a poor nation yet because we're, we are still borrowing. Now, I agree with that also. Persistent trade deficits are unsustainable in the long term because households and businesses need money. They need income to buy those imports. So when a nation runs a trade deficit, it spends more income than it receives from producing goods and services, either as a business owner or as employees. The only way for households and businesses to spend more in a given year than they receive in income is they dip into their savings or they go into a debt, into debt. I mean, that's just like your household. If you spend more than you receive, then you're going to have to dip into savings or you go into debt. And, and that's what happens when a country as a whole, in aggregate, when they're sending money overseas and, and running a trade deficit, then that means income from households and businesses are going overseas. More income than, was, than what was earned by producing goods and services in terms of the output, in terms of GDP. And as a result, that leads to higher levels of private sector debt over time. And we've seen that debt go up over the last few decades. Now, there is one mitigating factor if the federal government is running a budget deficit, then they're, they're spending more than, the government's spending more than they're receiving in income through taxes. That additional income flows to the private sector and that allows the private sector to, to essentially run a trade deficit and not take on quite as much debt. Now, in order for the U.S. dollar to crash, it has to crash relative to other currencies. Other currencies have to strengthen while the U.S. dollar weakens, and which means that other countries need to be in better, a better position than, than the U.S., particularly, let's say, the private sector debt level. The U.S. non-financial private sector debt to GDP, this is, from, this is statistics from the Bank of International Settlements, it's 152%. That's down from 170% in 2008. So the U.S. private sector is actually less indebted than it was. Now, more so than it was 100% debt to GDP in 1985. But at, a, at 152% private debt, non-financial private sector debt to GDP, the U.S. is less indebted than the rest of the world. The world's at 154%. Europe, 160%. UK, 170%. China, 
208%. Now, later in the show, Schiff says he recommends investing in countries that are better off than the U.S. He gives the example of Switzerland, whose private sector debt is 240%. New Zealand, 173%. Singapore, 177%. So all three more than the U.S. Now, smaller countries, because often they'll have multinational companies domiciled there for tax or regulatory reading or reasons, we have to look at what about household debt to GDP? The U.S. is at 79% year in 2017. Now it's 76%. That's down from 92% in 2008. So even U.S. households are less indebted than they were. Now it's a little higher than the world. The world's at 62%. U.S. again is at 76 Advanced economies as a whole are at 76%. Europe's at 58%. UK's at 87%. Canada's 100%. Japan, 57%. China, 48%. What about those refuge com- countries that are better off than the U.S.? Switzerland, household debt to GDP, 128%, higher than the U.S. New Zealand's higher, too, at 92%. Singapore's a little less at 59%. So, Mohamed Elarian, he's the former CEO and co-CIO of PIMCO, talked about this concept when it comes to currencies of the cleanest dirty shirt. Dollar has to crash relative to other currencies. If they are as indebted or more indebted than the U.S., then that's not necessarily conducive to to people fleeing the dollar because those other countries aren't necessarily better off. Even though the private sector probably could be less indebted than it is because that can tend to slow or, or hinder economic growth. Now, one of the areas that Schiff and I fundamentally disagree is this idea that interest rates are too low, that savings are too low. And that is keeping the U.S. from becoming more productive in terms of producing more goods and services. Maybe regulations are too high. I'm not going to debate regulations. I mean, I think perhaps in some areas there's too much regulation. Maybe in others there's not enough. I don't think that's fundamentally hindering the economy. But he doesn't put that, I mean, he mentions it, but most of the weight he puts on the fact that rates are are too low. Before we look at why he thinks that and why I disagree, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. 
And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Around the 32 to 36 minute mark, Schiff says, we have to allow the Federal Reserve to let the market set interest rates. Interest rates have to be much higher than they are now because that is going to encourage people to save. If interest rates are high, you will put your money in the bank to earn that high rate of interest. When money goes into a bank, it can get loaned out to businesses. Right now, all that money is going to government, or it's in the corporate bond market, where it's not growing the economy. The money is being used to finance stock buybacks. We need money on Main Street financing capital formation, entrepreneurship, new businesses, new jobs. When we get higher interest rates, we will get that. And we need people to stop buying things they can't afford. If we slow down our consumption, if we increase our saving and investment, then the economy can actually grow. But if interest rates go up, asset prices have to come down. The stock market has to come down a lot. Real estate prices have to come down a lot. That means people are going to lose money. They're not going to be happy about that. Later, around the two hour and 39 minute mark, Schiff said, we have to let interest rates go up so that people will save so entrepreneurs can get the capital they need to make the investments, to make the tools that their workers need to be more productive. But then we have to let asset prices fall. We have to stop trying to create this phony wealth effect. His argument is banks aren't lending to Main Street companies because there isn't enough savings, enough money in checking accounts and savings accounts. So banks don't have enough money to lend, and the only way to get that savings is interest rates need to be higher so that households are more likely to put money in the bank. Here's the truth. U.S. bank deposits are at all-time highs, $12.2 trillion in checking and savings deposits. As a percent of U.S. gross domestic product, this is for, as of year in 2015, 81.5% of GDP. That's an all-time high. Well, close to an all-time high. The all-time high was 83% in 2008. So checking bank deposits a percent 
of output of GDP, it was 83% in 2008. It was 81.5% year-end 2015, probably about the same today. That's up from 64% in 2005. So 13 years later, we have a huge amount of savings. And the savings rate, how much are household savings as a percent of personal disposable income? The U.S. US Bureau of Economics just redid these numbers. The average savings rate has been between 7 it's been around 7% between 2013 and 2017. So that's up from the previous estimate of, of, of 5% savings rates. It was less than 4% from 2005 to 2008. So we have a lot more money in the bank. Banks have deposits. But you know, because we've talked about it in numerous episodes, that banks do not make their lending decisions based on how much they have in terms of deposits. We know it's the opposite, that loans create deposits. I discussed this most recently in episode 205. I talked about in episode 157, in episode 94. Check out episode 205. Is the Fed really printing money so that banks have money to lend? They're not. Also, commercial and industrial loans are up 5% in the past year. They did fall 18% during the recession, but since 2011, they've been growing faster than the economy. At times, it's a 10% per year growth rate. And finally, interest rates are not artificially low. The Federal Reserve does not control longer-term interest rates. They have a policy rate that has been low, but as we talked about in Episode 204, why are investment returns so low? We talk about why the Federal Reserve has kept rates so low on the short end. We also talked about it in episode 191. Has a bond bear market begun? What is it that drives interest rates? The Federal Reserve is trying to set an interest rate at a level that that essentially it's the equilibrium real interest rate that makes sure there's enough borrowers and savers that there's a the meeting there. That's what they're trying to do. If they set it too high, then businesses don't want to borrow. Now, maybe you have more savings that way, but this is not an issue of not having enough savings because the money supply has increased significantly in terms of money that went in to U.S. banks. There's plenty of money. If the banks want to lend, there's money there, but Banks don't need money in order to lend it. It's an accounting entry. You take out a loan, you sign the documents, the bank puts a loan receivable as an asset, and they credit your bank account with the deposit. That's just how it works. They know that in Switzerland, and Switzerland just had a referendum that said banks shouldn't be able to do that anymore. They shouldn't be able to create money out of thin air by making loans, that that should be the responsibility of the central bank. This was the constitutional vote. It didn't win. This was just a month or so ago. But that's how it works. If Switzerland knows that and they're voting on it, that's how it works. Banks do not wait around 
for savings to show up in order to make loan decisions. Now, I agree with Schiff that businesses are not investing enough in productivity enhancement, that, that more and more capital is going to, to fo- focuses on buying back stock because that's easier. We talked about that in episode 177, how business contributes to income inequality. And 165, investing, it's not just about return. So I agree, we're not, the U.S. isn't as productive as could be because of a lack of investment. But that lack of investment isn't because there's not enough savings. It's because of how business is deploying the capital or they're not willing to borrow because they're not confident that they can get a return on the investment that justify the cost. Let's turn now, though, to sort of the the world's going to fall apart part of the, the, the podcast. This is at the two-minute and 20, two-hour and 25-minute mark. He says, this is how I think it is going to go down. Everybody believed that the Fed's policy of quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, everyone believed it was a success. They believed the Fed revived the economy, that they put out the fire. They still don't realize the Fed lit the fire and that they didn't put it out. It's simmering and people didn't notice it. What's going to happen, he goes on, is the Fed was never able to normalize interest rates. Rates are still 2%. That is still really, really low. And for all the talk about shrinking their balance sheet, it really hasn't shrunk. The balance sheet that was created, the amount of treasury bonds that they hold as part of quantitative easing. It's still enormous, he says. I think that the economy is going to slip into a recession. And when it does, the Fed never got interest rates back to 5 or 6% where they normally bring them. They never shrank the balance sheet. So now, all of a sudden, we go into this recession. But it's going to be a stagflation because inflation is starting to really pick up. Prices rise with the lag. The inflation is expansion is the expansion of the money supply. That's what the word inflate means, to expand. You can't expand prices. Prices can go up and they can go down. They can't expand. But expands is the supply of money. The supply of money expanded, and a lot of that went into financial assets. So inflation caused stock prices to go up. It caused real estate prices to go up. It caused bond prices to go up caused the price of rare art to go up. And all sorts of things went up because of inflation. Ultimately, a lot of that inflation is going to end up in the supermarket, at the gas station. So you're going to have that at the same time we have the recession. Let's stop there. The money supply did increase. When we think of money supply, we're thinking of M1, which consists of currencies, paper bills and notes, traveler's checks, and demand deposits, at commercial banks, including checking accounts. That's M1. M2 is everything in M1 plus savings deposits. And it did increase significantly. It went from $1.6 trillion in March of 2009 to its $3.7 trillion as of April 30th, 2018. So more in checking and savings deposits, just like we talked about. How did it get there? Well, one way it got there is banks created money. Banks create most of the money. 
around the world. They do that through loans. Loans went from $23.5 trillion in around 2009 to 2010. It's up to $29 trillion. This is households and business loans. They've borrowed a lot of money. And when the Fed's quantitative easing, we talked about this, the Fed did not create, increase the money supply. They bought U.S. treasuries and then the households and businesses and banks that sold those treasuries got cash. It was an asset swap. They became more liquid and they put the money in the bank. But no doubt, some of the money they got from selling treasury bonds went into stocks. It went into art because interest rates were low and investors' risk appetite increased as the economy recovered. So they took more risk and they invested in the stock market and the stock market went up. Investors were willing to pay more for a dollar worth of earnings. The price to earnings ratio has gone up. But it isn't because the Fed created all this money and handed it to people to invest in the stock market. They handed people money, but they they gave the Fed something in return. They did an asset swap. There was not an aggregate increase in money created by the Fed. Banks lent money, and that definitely increased the money supply. He referenced, Schiff referenced the, the high amount of inflation in the, in the 1970s. From 1974 to 1977, the three-year growth rate in M2, and this is cash, savings, and checking deposits, it grew, the three-year growth rate kind of was like 10 to 14%. The three-year average annual growth rate in M2. Inflation was over 10%. For the last three years, ending June 2018, the M2 money supply increased 5.9% on average. And inflation CPI, consumer price index, was 1.9%. Throughout this recovery, 10 years of recovery, money supply growth has been 6 to 8% per year. Inflation has never gotten over 3%. And I agree with him that inflation can work as a lag. But it's been a decade. Where is the inflation? We don't have inflation because we don't have capacity constraints. There's adequate capacity because of automation, because of slack in the workforce. He mentions the slack in the workforce. He mentions in the episode that he believes unemployment is understated because there are part-time workers that want to work full-time. There are discouraged workers, lots of workers. If there's so many excess workers, that's one reason we don't have inflation. He goes on. Fed's going to go back. So when the economy starts to slow, the Fed, he says, the Fed is going to have to go back to the only thing it knows how to do. We're going to do QE4, and we're going to cut rates back to zero. But now the market's going to see this, and they're going to say, wait a minute. You never normalized interest rates. You never shrunk your balance sheet. Now you're going to expand it again, and you're going back to zero? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. If you couldn't normalize interest rates following this last recession, how are you going to do it in the future? If you couldn't shrink a $4.5 trillion balance sheet, how are you going to shrink six 
or $7 trillion balance sheet. So it goes on. I think when the markets see that we're going to back to QE, that we're going back to zero, they're going to realize this is not temporary. This is permanent. That the Fed can never normalize interest rates. That the balance sheet is never going to shrink. That we're a banana republic. That we are monetizing our debt. That the Fed has no ability to drain that liquidity. No ability to fight inflation. That means the dollar is a bottomless pit. That means the dollar is going to keep falling. That means nobody's going to want to own it and everybody is going to want to get out of dollars. And everybody's going to want to get out of any bond that is denominated in dollars. And the Federal Reserve, in order to keep interest rates from rising, are going to have to start buying muni bonds. They might have to start buying corporate bonds. Otherwise, interest rates are going to skyrocket. And that just fuels the inflationary fire. And then we get a currency crisis where the dollar is plunging. Prices are skyrocketing. That is real pain. And who knows what they're going to do? He talked about maybe they'll do price controls. Maybe there'll be civil unrest. Going to be ugly, he says. But in order for that to happen, you need the inflation, which we don't have because we don't have the capacity constraints. And the Fed, we have had no inflation while the Fed has had trillions of dollars on their balance sheet. It just sits there. So I agree. I disagree. I think it's possible the dollar could weaken. I'm not expecting a crash because I don't see other countries in any better situation or better off. I mean, it's similar. that They're indebted too. And he talks about what do we do about it? You go to Switzerland, Singapore, New Zealand. The problem with that is if the dollar really crashes, the Swiss franc is going to skyrocket. And they are an export-led economy. And the prices of their exports that they're trying to export, again, it's going to be super high. It's going to absolutely hurt their economy. Same for other exports. If the U.S. suffers what he's saying, they're taking the world down with it. It will be a, a global recession. So what, do you, what else do you do? Well, you, he says you own gold, which I agree. I own gold. Jim Grant, in a recent speech, said gold is an option on the unexpected. We just don't know what's going to happen. So you have kind of that hedge in terms of gold coins. But I don't own it because I think the dollar is imminently going to crash. We're even going to crash in the next couple of years. I don't see that in the data at all. Now, maybe households and businesses do freak out. But there's no evidence now, and there has been no evidence of such in the last decade. So I'm going to wait and see for this inflation to show up. Because it's not going to show up because the Fed did quantitative easing. It hasn't. They've done it. And there's no inflation. Or at least not enough inflation to, to inflict that type of damage on the dollar, which happens to be strengthening significantly. And when you get a global recession, often fear drives people into U.S. government bonds. There's a flight to quality that pushes down yields. And when you get a global recession, businesses cut prices in order to try to spur demand. That's deflationary. That's not inflationary. It's deflationary. Stagflation is very, very rare. 
And it usually comes when the, con, when the, the government, Venezuela, which is going to experience a million percent inflation this year, according to the IMF, has decimated their economy because they do have the capacity constraints because they destroyed the private sector and people starving. That's what a banana republic is. That's not the U.S. The U.S. still, fortunately, and hopefully will continue, has credible institutions in terms of an independent central bank, the Federal Reserve, and hopefully we have the ethics and the integrity of our leaders to not do stupid things that the leadership in Venezuela has done. But we'll see. It's possible. I don't think it's imminent. I hedge. I own some gold. I do invest overseas. I agree with that recommendation. The market's cheaper. We talked about that a few episodes ago, why you should invest internationally. But it's not because the dollar's going to crash. That's episode... 215. Show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. All the links that I shared, references to the data are there in the show notes. If you're a member of my free insider's guide, I've already sent those to you. You've got them. If you're listening to this, you receive them in my weekly free insider's guide email. I include all the links as well as other content, other writing that's just not in the podcast. That's the only way to get that is to subscribe free at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. Simply general education of money, investing, in the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>